welcome to the Creative Giant Show, where we go behind the scenes about what it means to live a life full of creative and professional success. Creative giants are talented, renaissance souls with a compassion-fueled bias towards action. Now, here is your host, Charlie Gilkey. Hello, Creative Giants. I'm delighted to have Wendy McClellan join me on the show today. Wendy is a certified guerrilla marketing coach and a past nominee for Canadian Entrepreneur of the Year. Wendy built her original biz after a divorce left her with three kids under 10 to raise. She built her clientele by doing 10 cold calls by 10 a.m. every day, which, if you've ever done cold calls, is not necessarily the funnest thing to do in the world. Um, so a small typing business grew into a website that the New York Times chose as one of the best biz sites on the net. By the way, the same day they chose Microsoft. And a reputation as an expert on doing business online. As the business became successful, she was traveling throughout North America sharing the potential of the internet with other entrepreneurs. Keep in mind, this is before like blogging and online websites and business were really a thing. In 2000, Wendy contracted an E. coli infection that ate away portions of the lower three vertebrae and two discs in her spine, destroyed one kidney, and damaged her corneas and brain function. After three months in hospital, and then many more in a body cast, neck to knee to fused bone fragments back around the spinal cord, it took over a year to learn to walk again without assistance and regain mental functions. She chronicles her recovery and new life in her book, 27 Steps to Freedom, what learning to walk again taught me about success in business and life. The last 10 years have been spent raising her now young adult children and rebuilding a life. Today, Wendy provides marketing support and strategy for small to medium businesses and inspiration to people who need to know that you can start over again and again. Wendy, Thanks so much for the work you do and for being on the show today. Well, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to chat with you. Cool. You have such an amazing story. And, um, you know, it's I, I love chronicle, chronicling people who have overcome adversity and, um, you know, just have a really good, strong comeback story, too. Well, thank you. It's um, It took me a long time to get brave enough to actually tell the story. I didn't write the book until last year, which is nearly 15 years after all of the trauma happened. And I finally felt strong enough. And is the right time. All right. So let's go back before the infection. And, you know, when, when you started your business after your husband left you, what compelled you to start a business rather than get a more traditional job? Well, I had these three small children. They were all under 10. And I just couldn't imagine leaving them every day, juggling childcare. And they were still going through the trauma of, you know, being from a divorced family and coping with that. And, so I thought, well, you know, how can I stay home with my kids and earn a living? So I literally started a little typing business. I was able to get a computer with no money down. You had six months to pay it off from one of the big box stores. I'm sure we've all seen those ads. And I thought, okay, in six months, I can pay this off. So I started typing anything, um, term papers for university students, menus for restaurants. And as you said in the intro, I started, I created a binder of um, a bunch of mocked com mock companies, pretend companies, and I did a brochure and a flyer for each one. And then I traded babysitting with a friend and I would knock on doors, business, you know, businesses and offices and just say, hey, this is what I can do. I showed them my binder. And that's kind of how the business started. And it grew from typing to marketing very quickly because people would say, oh, this is a slow time for us or we did this program and it didn't work. And for me, marketing just came really naturally. 
So I was able to offer suggestions that worked, people got results, and they started referring more people to me. Yeah, this is around the time with like AOL was sending CDs. Absolutely, absolutely, yes, 1995-96. Yeah, let, let's go back to that because it's been a while for some some people listening to the show may not remember those days. I was I was there, but you know, that was a really pioneering time for people making the jump from um, straight up offline businesses to online businesses. So how did you foray into that and, and, you know, deal with dial up and, you know, people not having an email address and things like that? Well, as my business started to grow with the marketing side of it, I got a call from my local chamber and they said, we've heard what you're doing. Can you come in and do a day of consulting for us with businesses? And I said, sure. And after I did that day, I got a call from my local university college who chatted with the chamber and they were looking for someone to come in and talk about entrepreneurship, someone that was running a business in the community for a course they were teaching. It was like a six-month start-a-business course. So I went in and I taught for a day and basically, you know, the prof said, well, what are you going to teach about? And I said, well, let's just call it, bring me your toughest business problem because I'm really good on the fly. Like, that's what I love to do. So um, he was kind of freaked, but he agreed. And at the end of the day, he said, loved what you did. Can you design an entire curriculum for us? So every time something like that happens in my business, every time I get a win, and this is what I teach my clients too, is you think to yourself, okay, how can I leverage this win? So for me, leveraging the win meant I know there's a lot more people out there who want to start home-based businesses. This was kind of the beginning of that trend, right? And everybody was looking for a side business. So I thought radio, and I could have my own radio show. Now, the only time I've been in a radio station was when I'd won a t-shirt when I was about 15 years old. But for some reason, I thought that I could do this. So I drove to my local talk radio station. I did not have an appointment. I did not know the name of the marketing manager, and I didn't have a business proposal because at that time, I didn't even know what that was. And the marketing manager graciously gave me about 10 minutes of his time. I told him what I was doing at the college. And he said, you know, let me talk to my team and I'll get back to you. So before I even got home, and this was a Friday afternoon, he phoned me and he said, yeah, we love the idea. Let's start taping Monday morning and come in with 14 scripts ready to go. So I had 14 scripts of five minutes each to prepare. And um, he said, one thing is we want you to be connected to the Internet. And I'd heard of it. But I had no clue what it was, right? And at this point in time, there was maybe 200,000 web pages. That's it. And so I phoned up my local, the only internet company at that point in the Yellow Pages in my community. And they came out and did the dial up and you heard the beep, 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 you know, that sound that we're all so familiar with but don't hear anymore. And I literally, my kids were with their dad that weekend and I literally did not go to bed for 48 hours. I was online the whole weekend. I was seeing companies like General Motors, Kraft Foods, all these big organizations. And I thought, you know, I can do this. So I got this massive sheet of paper on my dining room table. I drew out what I wanted, taught myself some code, worked with a graphic designer and built this website. And within three weeks, the New York Times picked it as one of the best sites on the Internet. And that just literally blew up my business because, again, I said to myself, how do I leverage this? And I sent out a nationwide press release here in Canada where I live. And that got me um, dozens of new clients. It, I, within a year, I had built a team of about 8 to 10, some, at some points, 12 web designers working with me. So I would consult with the client. What are you doing offline now? What's your brand? What's your message? And team them up with one of my web designers to build an online presence. And then I would teach them how to leverage that presence online. 
And I was speaking, you know, all over Western Canada and the States because I, I had three things going for me. One, this was a whole new ball game that nobody had heard about and everybody was curious. Two, I was a woman in the industry, which was really rare. And three, I didn't speak tech. I spoke plain English because I didn't know the tech language. And so I was able to really leverage those three unique factors and, uh, you know, built a very successful business around that. That's fantastic. You know, as you tell the story, again, um, I've been building websites for, you know, a decade or so, right? And so I remember back in the day when WordPress was still new, but we're talking at a time where I think even Dreamweaver was new at that time. Yeah. And I, I remember when Dreamweaver came out and at this point, um, all the websites were HTML. Like there was no tools. There were no platforms. It had to all be handwritten code. And um, yeah, it was, there was no social media. So no Facebook, no LinkedIn, none of that stuff. But there were opportunities to make connections. There was an organization, there was one online that I belonged to, and it was called Rise, R-Y-Z-E.com. And that was sort of an early kind of social media connection. And I was very active on there, and it allowed me to really build a global business. I had connections all over the world, and that was awesome. And one of the things that I was able to leverage in those early days was when I was married, my husband and I had always talked about going on a cruise. And we had never done it. And I thought, you know, what the heck with him? I'm going to go anyway. And I found out from a travel agent that if, and I had no money at this point. I was still building the business and supporting my kids and stuff. And I found out if I could book 12 cabins on a cruise ship, the 13th one was free. So on Rise and in chat rooms, I sold 12 cabins to women. And I got my cruise and we all met in LA and we cruised down to Ensenada, Mexico and back. And we did a little business workshop every morning so everybody could write the, wor- the trip off. And that was sort of my introduction to the power of this ability to create global communities. So I took my vacation uh, based on social media in the early days, I guess you could say. Yeah, it's unfortunate that Brazen has such a negative connotation. Right. Because um, I love that word. I love, I love, you know, especially brazen women like, but it seems like, you know, you had that going for you from the beginning, because it takes a lot of backbone to be like, I can go knocking door to doors and get business. And I can go to a radio station unannounced and I can sell these 12 tickets. So there, there's that, that can do spirit about you Has that, you know, here's here's the thing. Sometime when we see people later in their entrepreneurial journey, um, Things like that can seem so natural and fluid, but have you always been that way or has it just been something that you've cultivated over the last, I don't know, 16, 17 years? I would say I've probably been that way most of my life, which I consider a real blessing because, you know, and actually this year to commemorate it, I actually had the word fearless. I can't see it. I don't know if you can see it tattooed on my, um, to remind me to be brave. And um, when I was 19, I also had a life-threatening illness. And so I realized, okay, I'm really lucky to be alive. Um, My biological mom died when I was a child. And so I knew how precious life was. And so I just knew. And I read these great books about women in history, like Marie Curie and Mother Teresa and all these women that had impacted the world. And here in Canada, Maggie McClung, who are, I forgot her first name. Oh, no, McClung, who helped women get the vote in Canada. And I just, you know, I knew these women had so many more barriers than I did. And so I just... I just did it. And, you know, I thought if I don't do it, I'm going to be mad at myself. 
And I had a grandmother who helped raise me after my mom died, and she was a spitfire, and she had broken down barriers in her life. And she just, we weren't even allowed to use the word can't in our house when I was growing up. And you had to put money in, the, in what she called the swear jar if you use the word can't. So I was just really lucky to have that as a backbone as a child. And just, and of course, there have been times in my life when I've been absolutely terrified. And, you know, um, we all have those. And I, I just, for me, I think back on the times when I was able to be brave and look at my tattoo and remind myself I have overcome the odds before and I'll just do it again. That's beautiful. Um, now let's talk about odds and fears and highs and lows. So the entrepreneurial journey is full of ups and ups and downs, but I can only imagine that the E. coli infection caused a completely different type of down. Um, so walk us through how it felt to go from the major highs of pre-infection to the journey during the infection. Sure. Well, just before I got sick, I had built this company, uh, was, um, doing extremely well. My kids were doing well, and I was nominated for Canadian Entrepreneur of the Year. Such an honor. And I was Business of the Year in my own community, and things were going great. And I was actually just about to open an office in L.A. because I was down in California a couple times a month and had taken a sec. was just about to sign the papers to get a second mortgage on this little house I bought after my divorce um, because I don't have a university degree. But I knew I could get um, a work permit, a work visa, if I invested a certain amount of money in an American business that was already existing. So I was ready to sign those papers. And then this, my kids got a stomach bug. Theirs went away. I got it. Mine didn't go away. And within six weeks, I had actually had to give up custody of my children to my ex-husband, his new wife. Uh, shut the whole business down because I was getting. Fevers of 103, bleeding sores in my throat, um, what they call Rikers, which is when you shake so hard you can't control it. My teeth were shattering from that. Um, I was losing two or three pounds a day, couldn't keep food down, just total body pain. And finally, I, I was going to the doctor and he just kept saying, come back tomorrow, come back tomorrow, and couldn't tell me what was wrong. And finally, one night I phoned a friend and I said, it just feels like my back is breaking. You've got to get me to the hospital. And so she did. And the reason it felt like my back was breaking was because this E. coli infection had literally eaten away parts of the bone and the, the discs in my spine. And when I went in that first night to the emergency room, the doctor on call couldn't get a blood pressure reading. I had been hemorrhaging for six weeks and he couldn't find a reading. So he said to me, we need to do massive blood transfusions tonight. And my parents were out of the country. My dad and my stepmom were away. And I said, can I wait till they get home tomorrow to ask them. He says, no, you'll die before morning if we don't do this now. So, okay, let's do it. And uh, they stabilized me here in my community, which is outside Vancouver. And then I was shipped into Vancouver where I spent um, 63 days in hospital, numerous doctors, numerous, uh, you know, they went into my spine with really fine needles. There was a big mass to be cool. I sitting on the base of my spine. They got as much as they could uh, put a pick line into my heart um, I don't remember a lot of things that were done to me during that time because I was having hallucinations due to the brain damage. And, uh, yeah, it was a very scary time. The one thing that kept me going was my kids. I had a picture of them beside the bed, and I'd look at that picture every day. And then every morning, too, I'd say to myself, okay, God, what lesson do you want me to learn today? And some days it was to be patient. Other days it was to ask for help and not be too proud to do that. Um, so I tried to really look at this as an opportunity to learn something and um, came out of the hospital in this body cast, plaster from just under my shoulder, under my arms, down to my knees to fuse the bone around the spinal cord again. And uh, went and lived with my mom and dad for uh, three or four months. 
Texas and uh, during that time learned how to walk again with a cane. And they have a really nice flat driveway from their front door to their end of their driveway I, was my goal, if I could do that in one go. And it took me three weeks to do it, but I got to the end of the driveway and coming back for some reason, I counted the steps and it was 27 steps. And now that's why the book is 27 Steps to Freedom. And I took, found 27 lessons in what happened to me and wrote about them in the book. How did you keep a roof over your head after you lived with your parents and before you were really back into a, um, I hate to use the word functional, but really where you could, you know, we're at that state to where you were, you know, you're saying brazen self again. There's two answers to that question that I want to talk about. One is the brazen self, which I'll talk about later. But the first one, how did I keep a roof over my head? I used the equity in my home to cover my bills for a number of months. And I couldn't work for about two years. And in the end, I ended up declaring bankruptcy and losing my home. And we started out renting a basement suite and just really started at zero again. And that was hard. I think signing those um, bankruptcy papers was almost harder than my divorce because I felt like such a failure. I'd worked so hard to rebuild a life for me and my kids after the divorce. And I just felt I cried and cried and cried. And I just felt like such a failure. And, you know, to keep a roof over my head, I did whatever it took. I couldn't I did not have the physical or emotional or financial strength to start a business again. But I went back to work for someone for a while. And then one of my kids had a bit of a crisis. And so I left that job and I did everything. I painted friends' houses. I got their gardens ready for winter. I typed uh, stuff for them. I ran errands. I made phone calls. Whatever I needed to do to generate revenue, I did. And it just taught me, you know, um, you'll do whatever it takes to move forward. And then over the years, as my kids got stronger, my kids got older and we kind of reconnected because I was away from them for almost a year. Um, I was able to rebuild my business again. And then the brazen self. One of the things I talk about in the book is that I am not the same person I was before. And I don't have the same awesome life I did before, but I have created a new awesome it looks similar, but it's quite different, especially on a psychological level. And I think that's one thing people sometimes need to difficult. It's hard to accept, but you're not going to have that same life again when you've gone through a trauma like that. And but yet you still can create an amazing new life for yourself. Which of the lessons from the 27 steps to freedom were the hardest for you to learn? That's easy. There was two. Forgiveness of myself, forgiving myself for pushing my body so hard and being so driven to prove that I could do this, that I didn't listen to the little health warnings that came along. I had been feeling unwell here and there for about six months, but I didn't listen and I didn't slow down. And the second one that was really hard for me was to ask for help. You know, um, I'm a type A personality. I'm very self-sufficient and independent. And so to ask for help was really hard, but I was able to switch it and understand that better by thinking of times when I've offered help to someone who needed it. And for me, offering that help was a gift. And so when someone offered help to me and I didn't accept it, it was like saying your gift is not good enough. And so I was when I shifted that in my mind, that really helped me to understand that I needed to ask for help and accept it graciously. I'm going to pause here because this is one of those lessons I learned the hard way and I continue to learn. 
um, the hard way is that relationships are largely built on reciprocity. And if you're the person that's always giving help, but never the person that someone can help, it ends up corrupting the relationship. And so um, at a certain point, like especially as entrepreneurs, we have this streak of self-sufficiency that comes up. I can do it. I don't need any other help. I'm not going to pay. Like all of that stuff that comes up. And just understand that that virtue comes with this vice that you've really sometimes intentionally got to look for ways to let people in and understand that that's a gift in its own right, right? Um, and so thanks for bringing that one up too. Yeah, those were the two toughest ones. And then I think the two that impact me the most today uh, would be gratitude. And I have a practice of every night before I go to sleep, I'm, I'm out loud, I'll say I'm grateful today for and thank you for um, five things. And during and I, it started even when um, I was going through my divorce, I had this practice and some days it was just that I could keep a roof over our head. And now I have a gratitude jar that I throw things into. As an example, it was my birthday last weekend and my da- two of my daughters and two of my grandsons, we went out for ice cream. And I kept the receipt because it was a cute little receipt from this ice cream parlor we went to and threw it in the gratitude jar. So on New Year's Eve, I'll open that jar and I'll see that. And so gratitude's a big part of my life. And then the other one, which is the final lesson in the book, is to um, share what you've learned, to pay it forward. And that's why I wrote the book, because I knew what I'd learned. These lessons are nothing new. I'm just telling them in my voice. You know, these are um, universal messages that we all can live by and learn from. And But I wanted to share my story in hopes of inspiring and helping others. You said it took you a while to actually share the story and write the book. Um, Why was that? It was a very emotional time. Um, Physically, I was subjected to a lot of very invasive and intrusive things in the hospital. And um, as a teenager, I had been sexually assaulted. And during my illness, I felt the same way. And so I had to really work through that. And also it was, I wanted to wait till my kids were fully grown before I wrote the book. And my youngest daughter got married last summer and all my kids are grown adults now. And I wanted them, if they read the book, to be mature enough to cope with what I wrote. Okay, so you've kind of charted where Wendy was, like on the high side and then Hello, and then you've been climbing back up. Where's Wendy today? Today, I am doing a lot of speaking, uh, 50% of it around social media, because that's the world that I live in and love. But 50% is also inspiration, motivation, talking about the lessons I learned in the book. And I also do a lot of business consulting versus coaching. What I do is a, you know, a deep dive strategy session with clients, help them uncover you know, work-life balance, um, what else do they need to build a team to be successful, and help them develop their strategies. And then my coaching isn't every week we'll talk on Friday for an hour. It's you call me when you need to have a conversation. And that is just how I work best. I'm a great problem solver and strategist, and so I love to do that kind of thing. And um, working on a couple of other books. Alrighty. So, what's the most unanticipated challenge you're currently facing? That's a really good question. I would say it's partially unanticipated is time, and I'm learn I'm having to learn how to be a better steward of my time. So, I have now an online booking system for appointments. I'm delegating. I have a VA, um, and I have an assistant who helps with uh, managing client accounts for me. So, just learning to manage my time better so that I'm being effective and not just being busy. I'm going to pause there, actually, because when you look at your journey back, you'd imagine that, you know, there's 
energy was really a limiting factor. Like you just didn't have as much, as much energy because you were recovering and things like that. What is it about what you're currently doing that's made time the pressure as opposed to sort of energy and attention? I would say probably I have, I mean, I took an online quiz that said I had adult ADD, who knows, but I'm one of those people that gets, I can be uh, distracted easily. So it's hard sometimes for me to keep focus. So I also have a coach. I think everybody needs a coach and she helps keep me focused. And um, so now people say, what do you do? I'm a speaker, I'm a trainer, an author and a consultant. And if something doesn't fit in that genre, those genres, I say, sorry, that's not the right opportunity for me. But before I was saying yes too much. And I'm learning to partner with people that are at the same level of business that I am which uh, can be hard because people that are just starting out, you know, they're attracted by your message or your knowledge and they want you to work with them. But that's why I create a lot of digital products for people, online training that they can take. I give a lot away where YouTube videos and webinars and that kind of thing, because I was teaming up with people that were just starting out and it was holding me back. I want to be the least smart person in a room. You know, I want to learn from those that have more knowledge than me and I'm willing to pay for that knowledge. And so now I'm getting better a better handle on my time and on where I put my energy. Saying no can be really challenging, and that's what it comes down oh, to. Oh, I know. It's so hard. You know, we, and I think, uh, I don't know if it's women or what, or, but I just want to help everybody. And I know that I can't. And so I have to learn to say no. And that can be really, like you say, it can be really hard. Because you know you can help them, but that doesn't mean you should. Just because you can does not mean you should. Exactly. And I talk a little bit about that in in my book, The Small Business Lifecycle, in that when you're in the earlier stages of business, you do say yes to everything, right? Because you're trying to get business in. But when you get to those later stages, like when you get to that breaking point in stage three, you you start saying no. And then you realize in in later stages that no is just the name of the game. You know, yeah, yeah. um, the challenge, you know, just to reframe here for everybody is when you look about the really amazing things that you can do to do those things, you have to let go of all the little small things that you might do instead. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so saying, you know, saying those quick yeses actually add up so that you you end up saying no to the big things. And so just think about that as you as you grow, you know, because it comes up for everybody. Yeah, it does. Absolutely. And you get a lot of opportunities to say yes throughout the day. And the more you build your business, the more people approach you and ask you to partner to do things. And and people know that I talk, I do a whole workshop on joint ventures and how that works. And so they know that I'm big on that. So, I mean, I'm getting people pitching me all the time. And now, actually, I'm redoing my whole website, and I'm going to have a form on there for people that want a joint venture. They have to kind of apply to joint venture. It's not just send me a quick email. It's, you know, this is the criteria. So that's going to help a great deal. Yeah, I mean, the challenge becomes at that stage is that it's really easy to commit and then under-deliver. Yes. And then not only do you feel like a butthole, but... You've also lost some ground with your peers because you become that person who who doesn't deliver. And no one wants to be that person, right? No, no, that's absolutely true. Absolutely true. And and I think um, I tell people, my clients too, I say you have to learn to say no and you're going to hear no a lot. But anyone who's raised children and raised toddlers has heard that word no a lot. So just, you know, get used to hearing it and just move on. No and not now become huge friends for you like you don't have to do everything now but not no doesn't not now doesn't mean no and 
no is completely okay. Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. All righty, if people remember nothing else about you and your work, what's the one thing you want them to take away from today's episode? To know that whatever challenges they're facing, that there are people that have walked the path before you who, have, who can guide you. And it doesn't have to be me, but to know that you're not alone in if you've lost your job or you've had an illness or you've gotten divorced or whatever it is in your life that you're struggling with, reach out for people that have walked the path before you because that will be so helpful to you. All right, everybody. That's Wendy McClelland. So think about your life and the different challenges and ups and downs that maybe you've faced, right? Think about what you can do to transform those challenges into fuel for growth and to take those next steps and reach out to those people who have been there before you. Until next time, stand tall. Thanks for listening to The Creative Giant Show. To find more tools and inspiration for creative giants, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. Stand tall, creative giant.